Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 10. I'm Editor-in-Chief Jonah Bennett here as the host, and as usual, I'm joined by Wolf Tyvey. Hey. And Ash Milton. Hey, guys. And uh, this time we're, we're also joined by a special guest, um, Mark Lutter from the Center for Innovative Governance Research. Uh, Mark's uh, research work is on, is on charter cities, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, Ash, since you, you wrote the article on charter cities for us earlier, um, talking about some of, some of Mark's work and, and charter cities in general, um, I'm going to punt it over to you for now and, and get you going on the question of the week, and then you can take it from there. Sounds like a plan. So preemptively, I'm going to sound a little different this week. Uh, I'm recording from an undisclosed location off the shores of the Pacific. And our question for this week is, of course, very topical, and it is as follows. Which one, Mark, of the following harmful substances would you legalize in your private city? You must pick one. The first is heroin. The second is video games. And the third is carbohydrates. And the rest of us will answer afterwards. Uh, I think I would go with legalizing video games because... (laughs) A powerful lobby. Yeah, I mean, they generate so much economic activity that it's just necessary, and they make sure that young men have something to do instead of right in the streets, and so <laughs> we know how much of a danger, there, there's nothing more dangerous than unemployed men from age 15 to 30. Ah, so some political realism right here. All right, what about the rest of you guys? Wolf? All right, all right. Um, I'm going to say heroin. Because heroin is very hard to control. You have to have those harm reduction policies, you know, something other than just using the law. But I think that video games and carbohydrates are a lot more controllable with the law. Um, so, so we'll sort of pick our battles on this one. If you ban carbohydrates, only the criminals will have them. <laughs> right. And the criminals will all be diabetics. It'll be slowly, it'll, it'll, yeah. it'll be just no, I know, I know. But, but that's exactly right. And that's why I would choose carbohydrates is that is that. From now on, diabetes will be a marker of general criminal activity. Um, and so that's, that's how we'll uh, usher in a new dystopian system of uh, criminal management. Wait, so you're okay, going legalize, okay. to legalize the, the carbs? Oh, wait. No, no. So that's the exact opposite thing. That we're, you're, If you're I had picked a different option. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If yeah, I this is what you're legalizing. So, so my answer... I'm going to legalize this guy, does, this guy doesn't even let me answer. This guy doesn't even let me answer because my, my answer was, was presuming a different question. Okay. okay. Um, so your actual answer. I guess I guess I, I I guess I would legalize carbs. Oh wow! You're just flipping. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, my reasons are my own. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> so uh, I I will also be picking carbs, but for a a very different reason. Uh, I have a long term plan where I will legalize carbs to make a multi million dollar deal with the craft beer mafia here on the West Coast. Uh, and one day be able to afford to sublet a basement suite in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I like to think of long term. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's uh, carry on then. So Mark, uh, thanks again for coming. Why don't we start off? Tell us a bit about yourself, about your organization, and what you're working on right now. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I'm the founder and executive director of the Center for Innovative Governance Research. We are creating the ecosystem for charter cities. Uh, my background, I did a PhD in economics at George Mason. I've been interested in charter cities for the last 
eight or so years, um, realized that one of the challenges in this space is that while there are a lot of people and organizations interested in charter cities, there isn't um, very much effective coordination between these different individuals and these different groups. And by creating a organization that can, to a certain extent, serve as a matching algorithm for these individuals and organizations, as well as promoting the general concept of charter cities and trying to embed ourselves in uh, various different um, these ideas in various different institutions, we thought we could uh, accelerate the progress of charter cities greatly and, and make some meaningful traction on the ground. All right, fantastic. I, I know that um, you know in the context of charter cities, there there was sort of a period of a few years when a number of think pieces and like were coming out. The Paul Romer's TED talk, uh, a number of people talking about it. I know you've uh, sort of moved forward now uh, in a few ways in terms of how you're discussing charter cities. So it seems like you're focusing now on on a more structural approach, right? You're working with different projects rather than a, a purely conceptual one. Uh, could you tell us about how you've kind of developed this concept uh, since the time that it started getting a lot of public press? Sure. So Romer, um, Paul Romer did a TED Talk in 2009, so about 10 years ago, promoting the idea of charter cities. And after the TED Talk, he got some traction in Madagascar and then in Honduras. Um, but once both of those projects, neither of those projects really got off the ground, and then afterwards he stepped away. And one of the, I think, lessons from that was to focus on building the ecosystem so it's not dependent on a single person uh, to get all of these different organizations and different groups interested to at least, and I hear these stories secondhand, um, his approach to financing charter cities and the actual real estate development was um, not as well thought through as it could have been. So one of the, I think, maybe insights that we have is by working with new city developers and depending on how you want to count, there's a few dozen to a few hundred um, master plan cities being developed around the world. So by working with new city developers to focus on these legal frameworks that will make them better places to do business. And then at a high level, Paul Romer's approach was to have a high income country act as the guarantor of a charter city in a low income country. So you can think of this, for example, as Canada coming down to Honduras and administering a charter city in Honduras. And we don't think this 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 proposal is feasible in that it's relatively difficult to get political traction to have a foreign country basically take over some of your territory and administer it. And two, necessarily desirable in that um, I think a lot of Western governments are don't really have the state capacity that they used to. And I'm not sure I would necessarily trust them to actually effectively administer a charter city. Well, what we do, our, our way we're thinking about it is by creating public-private partnerships with real estate developers and governments with the incentive of the real estate developer being to increase property value, which can be done via the creation of good governance, via improving the, the competitiveness of the business environment. And this allows for a more of a indigenous approach to um, institutional reforms that can be seen one as sort of a like prideful thing of the country, not as an imposition of an outside body that I think makes them more 
politically stable, and two, if the incentives are aligned properly, then hopefully it will become um, more responsive to the needs of the residents and the businesses that are in the charter city and be able to execute uh, more effectively. Uh, for example, the U.S. took 10 years to build the on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge, while it took only three years to build the Golden Gate Bridge. And so the question is, okay, if you put the U.S. in charge of actually building a charter city, is it going to take 10 years to put in like one basic infrastructure project? If so, it's probably not a good institution to run such a project. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I definitely want to get into uh, a little later into our discussion, the question of states, uh, because I know this is something that we discussed originally when I wrote the piece and when you were giving responses. And I think uh, looking at some of the projects that have happened, as well as some of the examples people use for inspiration for charter cities or for special economic zones like Shenzhen, like Singapore, I think a lot of interesting questions come up here. Just in terms of context for people listening, so the original piece that I wrote on Palladium, was this is in October 2018, it was called Why Charter Cities Won't Lead to Decentralized Government. And so I was responding to um, so, some of these questions. Uh, so I, I know at the time, uh, several people, including yourself, Mark, responded, and a lot of um, good discussion, good thought came out of that. I, I think to start, though, it would be interesting to look at something a little more concrete. And I know you guys have been working with a project in Zambia, I believe, uh, the in Kwashi, um, which is uh, a, a city or a town being built there. Um, can you tell us a bit about the project, about your guys' role, and the promise that you're seeing uh, in this particular venture? Yeah, so as I mentioned, there are uh, dozens of these master plan cities being built. The project in Zambia is being built outside of Lusaka, the capital city, about a 30-minute drive. Uh, it's on about 12 square kilometers. When complete, we'll have 100,000 residents, a business district and a university. The first residents should be moving in later this year or early next year. And this is um, what we are believe this can be basically the pilot project and proof of concept to a certain extent. So our role is to work with the real estate developer as well as the government of Zambia to help create a legal framework that will make it a better place to do business. And what this means in practice is uh, we hope to get a memorandum of understanding signed with the Zambian government later this uh, summer. And that will basically say that the Zambian government is interested in this concept and will make some of their experts available to us as we do some of the uh, draft, some of the technical recommendations as to how to implement this special jurisdiction that will allow Nkwashi to, to become a a charter city. And we believe that with the memorandum of understanding and Nkwashi existing, then this serves as proof of concept in that you have a new city development that wants to become a charter city and you have a country that is willing to seriously consider uh, implementing the types of uh, uh, reforms necessary to create the special jurisdiction of a charter city um, that can, one, hopefully be used to subsequently propose uh, legislation as well as other reforms in Zambia that can be implemented to create the special jurisdiction, as well as to help inspire other countries uh, nearby as well as around the world to start thinking more seriously about these types of reforms um, that can really move the conversation from one of 
uh, high level sort of idealism to actual practical concrete steps as to what does it mean to actually implement the, these, these reforms and create these special jurisdictions that are much better places to do business. And in, in terms of the framework here, I'm interested because what, one of the things people have brought up uh, when you're creating these sorts of zones is that in countries where you have systematic legal difficulties or legal barriers to development, the idea is that you can even import maybe legal systems from other jurisdictions. I know Hong Kong, I believe it is, right, has uh, legal involvement from um, judges and so on from outside of the country. Is uh, In the case of this project, is there this kind of institutional importing happening or is it a, a local innovation in terms of the framework being created? Well, what we would do, what, what we would want to do is propose this, um, not sure institutional importing is necessarily the right term. What, what we are proposing is a public-private partnership between the real estate developer and the Zambian government that will create a special jurisdiction that will have a blank slate in commercial law. So it would still remain under the Zambian constitution, under Zambian international treaties, under Zambian criminal law, but for commercial law, including uh, business registration, uh, property registration, labor law, tax administration, it would have the authority to create these new systems. And what we would like is to then firewall to the extent possible the Zambian government and this new administration with the assumption that that makes it easier to escape some of the institutional barriers that are currently holding Zambia back. And then once this new administrative authority is set up, it would have the freedom to either partner with external organizations, which for example, it might be able to bring in the British Privy Council as the superior court. Um, if it starts thinking about finance, perhaps it could do a partnership with the Dubai International Financial Center. Um, it, it might do find different contractors for different areas to provide the set of services necessary to become to 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 govern effectively. We have not gotten to this um, partnership stage yet. We are still at the creation of the legal framework, so we haven't put as much thought into. Uh, sort of what these partnerships would look like and how they would be formed uh, at this point, but we 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 would want to to I mean right, it, it, to avoid reinventing the wheel as much as possible by by looking at organizations and institutions that have experience with these different sets of expertise. So hopefully they could be brought in to um, accelerate the development of the, the 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 new legal framework as much as possible. Mm. So uh, in the case of the project in Honduras, which I think was one of the first that at least uh, on the popular stage got a lot of exposure, the plan there um, was was more or less the Honduran government wanted to create a special economic zone in the country that would have a, a distinct legal framework. A number of people who had popularized the notion were directly involved, including Romer at the start. And I, I know when I was researching uh, for the original piece, when I was looking at how pe what people had come away with from that project, a few of the big problems uh, involved, first, just the local corruption that already existed, sort of a chicken and egg problem here, where how do you enter uh, a place where institutions are not high trust, where they are corrupt, and then create a jurisdiction that is meant to overcome these problems. The second one seemed to be obstruction in Honduras from local stakeholders who felt sidelined or who, who didn't have uh, a stake in the project in Honduras. 
Uh, and it looks like for now that has more or less stalled, um, at, at least when, when I was last looking at this. I'm interested in comparing this project in Zambia with the Honduran one. And from your perspective, what you think is getting fixed here in order to avoid some of these same risks or failures? Yeah, so briefly to comment, um, there was an article in the Honduran press that hasn't been reported to my knowledge outside of the Honduran press, I believe two to three weeks ago, that suggested that the first charter city is going to be announced in two to three months. I've been hearing this rumor for a while, so take it with a grain of salt. Sure. But there does seem to be more meaningful traction in Honduras than there has been in a few years. Um, but broadly, I think one of the, the primary difference is what is coming first. So Honduras created the legal framework first and then tried to bring in developers. Um, in Zambia, the developer exists and we're trying to create the legal framework. Uh, second, we are, while most of our energy is in Zambia, we are trying to diversify. We are trying to create a pipeline of other projects and other groups of um, interest with both real estate developers as well as potential entrepreneurs who are interested in building charter cities. So we have a charter cities business plan contest. The winner wins uh, $25,000, second place gets $10,000. Um, which we will, uh, the, the winners will be announced at our conference in Johannesburg on October 2nd and 3rd of this year. And so we're trying to create a pipeline of basically people who are interested and capable in, in building charter cities because any one of these projects is, right, like we, we is, is relatively uncertain. So for example, in Zambia, assuming everything goes well with the memorandum of understanding and then we propose legislation, Ultimately, then it's out of our hands, and then the Zambian government would have to pass this legislation. And I'm not an expert on Zambian politics. It's hard to know exactly when that could be, and everything could get slowed down because politics is messy and confusing. And so what we are trying to do is, one, get this started in more than one place, and two, to try to coordinate with these groups so there can be... Um, best practices uh, learned from some of them. And so, for example, in Honduras, as you mentioned, a lot of there, there was some challenge in that some of the, the local stakeholders felt sidelined. To a certain extent, they started at a too high of a level. There was a small group in the government that was interested in passing this. They brought in Paul Romer. And so in Zambia, we're starting at the ministerial level and trying to build a um, broader base of support. We've reached out to other developers to see if they are interested in sort of joining this um, push for uh, charter cities. Um, and we actually have projects that it's not just an idea that says we're going to create this framework and try to attract groups. There actually are projects on the ground that it can be applied to um, instantly, such as Mkwashi. Uh, and, and then two also, right, start, uh, we, we've started to, for example, approach investors and start talking to them. In our conference, we will have a panel on um, investing in charter cities. So starting to to have this be more of a than a just a theoretical discussion, but actually point like you would attract another five, 10, whatever million dollars in foreign direct investment if you create this legal framework. Um, and and, 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 and um, make the, the reforms 
um, more sustainable and, and deeper. So we're also trying to identify longer term funding sources for our organization that makes sure that this is not just, I mean, this is a life project for me. This is not something that if it, Zambia stalls and gets frustrating, then I'm going to walk away, uh, but, but really in it for, for the long haul. And so I think the other aspect is just 10 years on, there is more interest in new city developments. There is uh, more interest in the creation of these new legal frameworks. For example, the Seasteading Institute was founded with the assumption that no country would consider adopting the, this set of legal reforms. And in the 11 years since its founding, it's become somewhat apparent that countries will adopt these deep sets of legal reforms. And so I think the timing is also just a little bit better. Yeah, well, it's definitely the case that like in in any stream of innovation, it in a sense, it's hard to prepare for innovation that hasn't happened yet. It's usually the case that uh, someone comes along with an idea and the capacity to make it work and then convinces people to cooperate and adapt around them. So in that sense, uh, this, well, it makes sense that this is the path going forward. What I'm interested in in though is uh, I want to sort of come back to this uh, corruption question here because this is a problem that it, it's not just unique to the charter city movement right anyone who's working be it in the private sector uh, in government in nonprofits in in a lot of countries where people have looked at potential charter cities runs run into this problem uh, it's quite difficult to trust institutions when you can't really predict what they'll do unless you have the resources to essentially become a patron. It sounds like uh, in a way where you have now uh, someone wanting to make the idea happen and then you're doing the institutional adaption after, the strategy is in a sense trusting that the organization or the person working here is able to create this trustworthy uh, set of institutions on the small scale and then start scaling them up. Do you think that's correct? Is that how you get around these problems? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. The assumption is that the incentives of the the developer are aligned in the, that they they want to increase land values, and by increasing governments governance, you by improving governance, you increase land values. Um, but I think more broadly, the point you raise is is a good one in that like you have to basically walk this fine tightrope between. Charter cities are most effective in areas that have poor institutions, but you're trying to sort of like create these good institutions in these areas. And the logic for advancing charter cities over other types of institutional reforms is just that by focusing on small greenfield sites, there are fewer special interests um, that allow for deeper reforms than would be possible on the national level. Two, and so for example, Shenzhen in China was built in part in Shenzhen, not in Shanghai, because there were fewer interests there, so it had less, there was less threat of disrupting the political equilibrium. And then two, um, charter cities have the developer as a special interest group that wants these reforms because they benefit the developer. So you reverse the typical logic of collective action in that you have a private interest that captures some of the benefits from liberalization and then pushes for liberalization rather than pushing for um, basically their their own personal rents at the expense of everybody else. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, in the case of Shenzhen, I think you mentioned this in one of the talks you gave, actually, uh, but Hong Kong actually needed uh, the prices were getting too high there, right, for, for producers. 
And so that the Chinese government, when Shenzhen was being established, actually had support there already. And as you mentioned, there was kind of this bottom-up lobbying. That brings, uh, I think that brings us, though, to a, a good start for one of the discussions that I wanted to have, which is the incentives that existing governments have to pursue projects like this. So I know I was looking at the uh, Inkwashi site, and uh, it's mentioned on here that this zone is near the Zimbabwe border. And I think that gives, uh, on the question of state capacity, that's obviously kind of the classic example that Zimbabwe, a country with very poor state capacity, uh, in a sense, investment dollars in that country will just not go as far uh, because they don't have the institutions necessary to receive those funds properly. And, and you know, th there's higher risks. Um, there's less possibilities maybe for investors. Uh, in the case of zones like Shenzhen, um, let me give some context here. So in terms of the discussion of charter cities, that had happened when these pieces started coming out. I know a lot of people looking at them had thought about them as sort of, call them maybe liberty zones, zones of uh, social and economic freedom that were in a way liberating themselves from these central governments, you know, which, which were too slow to respond, which had institutional decay and so on and so forth. But what actually seems to have happened in a number of cases is central governments, uh, like the Chinese example here, using these zones to route around uh, obstructive or decaying mid-level institutions, right? So as you mentioned with Shenzhen, uh, they picked an area where there were less entrenched interests already there. Uh, and so the government had maybe a freer hand in experimenting and allowing things to develop. And then when momentum was established, they were able to sort of sideline some of these older institutions that were maybe holding back uh, development somewhat. I, so I'm interested in your thoughts there on the relationship between central governments, uh, these these cities or special economic zones, and whether or not that's a symbiotic or an adversarial relationship. Um, I think in general it has to be symbiotic because if it's adversarial, the central government is going to win most of the time. And I think you gave a reasonably good summary in that Government, I mean, it's often thought of as government a single actor, but in reality, government is a number of different actors that push against each other. And a successful institutional change requires the allegiance of the ruling elite. And so if you want to implement these institutional changes, you need to find which portion of the government is interested in this and basically ally yourselves with them. And hope that they are able to to push that set of of re, re, reforms through. I think there is a strand in libertarian thinking that is one sort of decentralization is always good or almost always good. And then two, these can be like beacons of true liberty or whatever you want to define it as. And I don't really think that's the right way to conceive of charter cities. I mean, you don't want to build a charter city just so you can Right, like do all of the drugs and gamble all <laughs> you want. It's it's right, like I don't know, maybe one of those might be interesting, but two of those is pretty boring. Um, and and realistically, I view charter cities as a basically a tool for for political reform. Um, in most circumstances, not in all circumstances, but in most circumstances, it would probably be better to adopt the reforms of the charter city at the national level. Um, but the reason you don't do that is because of political constraints. 
and so you focus on these um, new developments that uh, are able to pass these reforms more deeply. And generally, I think also, at least in, in certain spaces, the importance of large political units to create internal free trade zones is basically underrated. If you look at the history of modernity, a lot of modern states, their comparative advantage was basically crushing the local principalities that always had these tax burdens um, and creating internal free trade zones that were able to then lead to a greater division of labor and and economic growth. Um, and I don't think we should ignore the importance of basically these internal free trade zones with regulatory harmony that allow for um, economic development and the the ideal world is probably not one of like a number of basically competing city states, um, uh, but instead one of like, I mean it, it depends on what the what the constraints are, but uh, um, yeah, I think I think charter cities should be viewed as a tool of more of as like political reform than an ideal end state for so we, we government have, norms. We may have still a system of you know central governments and of course some countries be more powerful than others but perhaps these are a method where the same government can create more diversity in uh it, the policy matrices that they're employing or how they're adapting to developing a specific local area would that be how you think about it yes and then two i think the other aspect is hopefully if you have successful charter cities then they can inspire the rest of the country to adopt these successful reforms and so it can be a way of introducing otherwise politically unpopular reforms that are then adopted more widely in the long term to which the actual like institutional benefits of the charter city are just eliminated because the government re- adopts all those reforms on a national level. Mm-hmm. So I think you see it. You, you, sorry, Ash. Uh, so you see it kind of as like an experimentation space that's politically cheap uh, where, where governments can try out different ways of doing things that can then um, help. Uh, sort of create momentum for for better ways of doing things that will then push on to the the more national level. And, and I suppose and I suppose if they don't, it still increases. It would still increase land value and and maybe presumably tax revenue or, yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. relationship it, exists. Like it's it's good even just as as its thing. But I'm sort of thinking about like the big picture. Yeah, what you're going for is like that those these things become like centers of of innovation in, in law and so on. Yeah. So ideally, right? You basically see the like, I don't know what you'd call it, like the charter city eat the country to the extent that the charter city reforms are adopted nationally. I wouldn't over, I, I would actually underemphasize the experimentation point. You generally okay. want charter cities to adopt what, I mean, yeah, best practices to the extent they exist in that right, um, at least the first and second generation, you don't want to try out things like the Harburger tax, where it's like, this could lead to massive productivity gains, but it also like might not work at least on the first iteration. Um, you want, like, if any large, complex project, you generally want to de-risk, and charter cities are no different. The second yeah. or third generation of charter cities, then you might want to think about experimentation a little bit more. Okay, that's but, a good point. But um, the first generation, you want to figure out what works and try to copy that to the extent possible. So, so then you're you're talking more, like, rather than sort of experimentation where you're aiming to actually figure out whether it works, it's we have a bunch of existing best practices that some people know work, and you deploy those in a limited context to kind of prove them and create a wedge, like a bit of a political wedge to, to kind of, like, increase their their currency yeah i mean i would say like yeah part 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 of it's a political wedge part just to make the city successful but i don't think there are any people who like 
seriously argue that the uh, cost of registering a business should be like forty percent right. of annual per capita income. <laughs> right, right. So the, that's why in the in, in this but, but somehow that's still the like the yeah, policy in a lot of places, still, and, and because like they haven't like creating that very concrete demonstration of here's what happens when that's not the case. Yeah. I, I think is that's a very powerful thing. Like making things concrete is is sort of a good way to like prove a point in a way. And also, I think also like the other way to think about it is just like social distance of um, groups to proof of success. So China, to a certain extent, as previously mentioned, adopted these special economic zones because one, Hong Kong was lobbying them, but also two, they could see Hong Kong, they could see Singapore, they could see Taiwan. And they're like, hey, they're, they're getting rich and we're still poor, what's going on? And uh, like, they're Chinese, we're Chinese, so what's going on? And right, like those successes and the Asian tigers are too far away from Africa. So Africa couldn't really be like, mm -hmm. oh, like, right, it, it, it's too socially different. So there wasn't the same, like, they're doing it. Why can't we do it? Oh, right. Yeah. But now that we're, we are seeing the emergence of some African tigers, like Rwanda, um, yeah, Ethiopia, Rwanda. Kenya, there is starting to be this, oh, right, like, they're doing it. We can do it too. And two, right, if you see, like, for example, Zambia get a special, a, a charter city, then Tanzania is going to think, oh, hey, like, Zambia is not smarter than us. We can do this too. And you see that regional competition that you don't see when it's happening mm -hmm. halfway across the globe because it's sort of much more salient because mm -hmm. the cultural distance is less and because they it, it's it's a thing of keeping up with the Joneses to a certain extent that they can visualize mm -hmm. that this is something that we could accomplish and, and that allows yeah. it to spread and, more and so the, sort of the, the top level goal here is is to kind of uh, accelerate the the application of kind of like existing best practices. So I, I'm, I'm thinking um, in terms of the effect of uh, sort of just to add to that question there, uh, because these best practices, this experimentation has a final goal, right? I, I think one of the points you made earlier here, Mark, was important, which is this idea that governments are not just unified entities. They're very heterogeneous, right? And you have some parts of governments often trying to outcompete others. Uh, we forget that the Soviet Union had its own reform-minded government at the same time that China was starting in the 80s. It failed, uh, and, and there's literature on why that was. Some people point to the fact that a lot of interests in the USSR were much more entrenched. Gorbachev might have been reform-minded, but couldn't route around them. Um, I, I'm interested in the effects of scaling up these best practices, as you're answering this, on those parts of governments which are most successful at using them. So to be more concrete, if central governments, let, let's take, for example, the Saudi monarchy, right? If uh, they are able to make the NEOM project work, which is uh, one of their special economic zone projects, uh, or their, their major one, um, are these best practices ultimately able then to, in fact, strengthen governments, uh, or at least those parts of governments which are successfully scaling them up? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you can imagine different ways to, to do this. So, for example, if you have a successful charter city, then maybe part of the deal of the charter city is that the charter city, the new institutions like new tax administration that the charter city develop has to basically make their services and expertise available to the national government to have the national government learn. So you sort of have some like cross cultural bureaucracy sharing, but instead of it going government to charter city, it goes charter city to government. Um, two, just also just within the nature of human dynamics, 
the parts of the bureaucracy that do promote the charter city, if it is successful, are going to want to take credit for it to boost their own status. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you have the Zambian Development Agency, which is responsible for attracting foreign direct investment, and they're a bunch of economists, so they understand the value of the charter city, so they get involved and they're like, hey, this is interesting, this is good. Um, and then it's successful, then they can boost their relative status in the government and have the a greater ability to push on projects while the organizations that might be less enthusiastic about the charter city would then um, see their status drop just because they're backing the, the wrong horse. And it seems well, to be the case that governments which are successful at this could even at, perhaps at some point market themselves to zones or to cities in other areas. Um, well, I'm not sure exactly. I guess I'm not sure how that would... Uh, in, in terms uh, of consultation, in terms of creating yeah. a legal framework, etc. Yeah, I think that the, the, there, there, there is that possibility. I mean, our organization plans to be the group that does, to a certain extent, the creation of these legal frameworks. And I'm hoping we can do it better than governments. <laughs> well, that might be because there, there's uh, less of a conflict of interest. Yes. Um, yeah. And then there's, as a result of that, less uh, geopolitical entanglements. I mean, I, it's it's difficult to imagine, say, uh, you know, let's say, you know, if, if innovation is totally stalled in the U.S., you know, maybe China's, China approaches the U.S., and says, hey, well, we've got this uh, Shenzhen zone that's been working spectacularly. Uh, we could really help you start a bunch of charter cities in the yeah, U.S. Just, just give us control of San Francisco. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right in the middle at the at the height of the trade war. And, yeah, all, and so, all those those boats that are painted gray, those those are trade boats. Trust me, yeah. <laughs> they're not naval boats. Um, so, you know, that's that would be another argument for for, for why uh, government to government wouldn't quite uh, wouldn't quite be as successful. I so. mean, we are seeing a little bit of that government to government aspect so there's I occasionally hear about Singapore being interested in doing um, uh, sort of joint ventures in terms of establishing the, the, the legal regulatory frameworks and the most active one is probably Dubai because Dubai has um, all of these free zones one of the most prominent being the Dubai International Financial Center and I relatively consistently hear rumors about them basically being involved in trying to help set up do partnerships with financial centers mm -hmm. in other countries my guess is that that dynamic is going to be a relatively limited to those uh, countries in countries that have less state capacity. Even if they have successful charter cities, it's, I think, somewhat difficult to imagine the bureaucracy becoming effective enough to wanting to like take meaningful roles in establishing these other systems. I think there will probably be individual people from those countries who, with their experience, will set up consulting firms, but probably not via the government itself, probably via um, separate mechanisms. And that's one thing that we're beginning to think about is basically how to create um, pipelines for uh, ambitious bureaucrats in these countries such that th there are career opportunities generally relating to charter cities, not just in their own country, but um, sort of more broadly that hopefully can incentivize them to uh, push a little bit harder in their home countries for charter cities with the knowledge that if successful, they can uh, leapfrog their, some of their colleagues in terms of career success mm -hmm. um, and have these avenues to, to help replicate the model in other places. So, you know, in many European countries, 
for for example, Zambia is not the only one with with onerous commercial law. For example, uh, you know, a lot of places in in Europe have. Uh, pretty extensive requirements for for company registration, whether capital requirements or staff requirements or accountant requirements or et cetera, et cetera. So you have a couple of options for for changing this. Number one, you know, some kind of populist party runs, uh, gets into the executive, and then promises to fight the bureaucracy and win, and and make reforms. You know, that's that's a sort of like. Uns the prospects of that are entirely uncertain, and it's and it's very difficult to just march into a country and manufacture something like that. Uh, probably, basically impossible. And then, you know, the second is possibly a a charter city where uh, you essentially pit various parts of the government against each other because, you know, if the bureaucracy is responsible for administering administering commercial law, they're not exactly going to want to give up. Uh, jurisdiction over that over a certain area. So uh, I would be curious in in Zambia how you guys plan to to address the conflict between yeah uh, the ministerial angle you're you're going down and uh, the pushback that probably maybe not but probably will be coming from from the bureaucracy. So I mean generally our, our goal is to work with them. So while we started pitching a blank slate, realistically we're probably not going to end up with a blank slate in commercial law and we'll have to create a legal framework that is a little bit more circumscribed in what it can do. So we want to work with the various government bureaucracies and basically go to them and say, like, look, what is your wish list of wish list of reforms? Like what reforms do you think are best practices that you would like to implement that you cannot? because of political challenges, mm -hmm. like tell us, and then we will be able to implement them in this charter city. And then you can have proof of concept when mm -hmm. going to talk to the rest of the government to make these reforms. And then two, more broadly, I think one of the important aspects is just, like charter cities are sexy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so this is a shiny thing that the politicians yeah. can take credit for. Mm -hmm. um, if you are an American, what do you know about Zambia? First, you probably know it's a country in Africa. If you read uh, like The Economist somewhat closely, you might know it's facing a debt crisis. And the rumor is that the Chinese are going to confiscate their, not confiscate, um, but what's the right word, whatever. Um, but basically take over their electric utility if they fail to pay their debts. Uh, right. And that is about the sum total of most international news on Zambia. So what if Zambia becomes a global leader in creating a framework for sort of the next generation of governance, the next generation of special economic zones? Mm -hmm. This creates all of this positive press they can take credit for. They can attract a little bit of foreign direct investment. Um, and it, it, it allows them to position themselves differently from how they are usually perceived and um, hopefully can generate some of the political momentum necessary to actually push these uh, reforms through. So would you say um, perhaps one variable of, of whether a charter city will, will bypass political constraint or not is, is the presence or absence of, of external threat? Because uh, China seizing an entire electrical grid in a country that I'm sure uh, appreciates independence is somewhat of a motivating factor for existing political fault lines to uh, be erased, at least temporarily. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look uh, historically, free cities often emerge on the edge of empires 
And I think if we view the sort of China-U.S. dynamic in somewhat similar terms, for example, mm-hmm. we're seeing a bidding war in Djibouti a, mm-hmm. between Chinese and European firms. Uh, and if you are a smart country, what you would and then, and then two, China is also implementing what are sort of charter city-esque projects. For example, in Sri Lanka, they signed a 99-year lease um, for a uh, state-run company to control a port, which is sort mm-hmm. of like Hong Kong 2.0 in, in a few ways. And so one, this is in some sense politically legitimizing this idea of these separate jurisdictions. And then two, if you are a country where you're looking for investment, you're looking to get the best deal possible, then yeah, I mean, start a bidding war between China and the U.S. Um, uh, Start trying to get the best deal you can uh, for the necessary investments, for the necessary uh, wealth creation that your country needs at a particular time. And I think that would be, um, if I was in charge of a, a, a emerging economy that was seeing interest from both China and the U.S. as well as Europe, I would try to play them off each other to the best extent possible to, to get the best deal. And I do think that opens up a space for, I guess, politically unusual projects like charter cities much more so than 10 or 15 years ago when there were this, this dynamic didn't exist and the U.S. had more of a monopoly on like international development and mm-hmm. investment. So that's an interesting uh, segue. If we go into now, I'm curious about uh, how this plays with the rest of like the inter- U.S. international development community and how they, how all that stuff fits with the charter city thing. Like, or do you expect... Um, cooperation or conflict or like right now it doesn't (laughs) okay it just doesn't interact with it is it is that because it's like decayed and not paying attention or like doesn't care yet or what i i think decayed and not paying attention i mean my general view is i'm not sure there's a single like u.s institution that's functional at this point sure um with the possible exception of like tech uh I do think that this is a way to project U.S. soft power in the sense that the U.S. has has had this vision that it oftentimes hasn't lived up to, but has had this vision that, look, we're going to like be the best place that everybody wants to come to show the world how to live, to have all of these ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this allows a basically a non-coercive way to export some of these ideals mm-hmm. to other places that can show, okay, hey, liberalism broadly construed works, markets work, mm-hmm. um, rule of law works. Uh, these things can create prosperous societies that people um, enjoy to live in. At the same time, given the U.S. one, the I think recent history, just in terms of like overseas aggression, I would not necessarily want to be too closely allied with the U.S. because, right? Like, as I mean, I'm good. Uh, uh, like the the, the 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 CIA does not exactly have a good record of. It's hard to keep deals with the U.S. Yeah, intervening <laughs> in other countries. I would prefer this to be a like have have tacit support of um, American institutions and perhaps um, financing from OPEC or or the World Bank, but um, not much um, more beyond that. 
And and then two, just I'm not sure there are many American institutions that are functional enough that there is a like meaningful value add in collaborating with them at this point. Right. Yeah. yeah the, the the problem with Western development in general. So uh, as as it happens, when I was working on my on my bachelor's degree, I was in a faculty that worked quite extensively with a number of development agencies and so on, um, doing caring for research and things like this. And something I would always notice was the set of essentially crippling neuroses that exist in Western development. And essentially, they're in the form of, on the one hand, you have these agencies which are, are government or at least are, are aligned with government agencies which are inherently political, but sort of do not want to address the fact that they are political entities in addition to being development agencies. The other thing, though, is that a lot of people who go into development as an industry, and I, I think calling it an industry is quite accurate um, because a, a lot of people make money in there and a lot of the same dynamics are at play, but there is a fear of the size and scale and disruptiveness necessary to actually achieve the development gains that you see in a lot of places and that both charter cities and other people uh, have looked at as models. And because once you do that, the fear among people in these development groups, of course, is that, well, uh, you've either exported now these cultural expectations as well. um, So there's fears about imposing uh, foreign institutions on places, especially where there's been a past history of of colonialism or of exploitation. And so because of that, there's almost this uh, fear, essentially a fear of success, where if you have been successful now the question is, did you do things too big? Um, did you, should you maybe not even have, you know, the, the question even of what kind of development uh, is acceptable comes up. Uh, you'll get some people who even argue that building a city uh, in, in the middle of a country might be the entirely wrong way to do these things. And so essentially the culture where it's, which would be necessary, which is more risk prone, um, which focuses on actually achieving sustained development rather than what you get out of Western development, which is oftentimes a lot of band-aid solutions where you're giving aid to kind of patch failures in a system or to provide, uh, you know, maybe a short-term support structure, but without investing in the long-term. In order to get around that, it's, it basically seems like um, if there's support from the West, for things like special economic zones and charter cities, it's not going to come from the people who are right now actually tasked with the the sort of idea of global development. Yeah, and I think this is historically where innovation comes from. It comes from sort of people on the fringes, and so I'm right. Like I can sort of speak international development, but I'm not necessarily one of them. Um, and I, 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 I'm not sure I'd be necessarily as pessimistic as you. I do think there is an important point in that development is an industry. And to have new solutions is to a certain extent an implicit acknowledgement that the previous attempts have been unsuccessful. And that would basically require the lowering of status of the people who promoted the previous attempts who are often in positions of power. So they obviously have a vested interest in not admitting that the previous attempts have not been as successful as hoped. Um, And then two, this is just uh, like broadly large bureaucratic institutions, particularly ones that don't have strong feedback mechanisms because they are have right like 
government money are just very slow and difficult to change. And so based on my conversations with people in these communities, there is a slowly growing interest, but they are basically never going to be leads on like big new ideas. So for example, the IFC, which is the World Bank's arm for private um, investing, they have a chief thought leadership officer. And if you have a chief thought leadership officer, then your organization is not going to produce any thought leadership. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just like that's that's right. Like that, it, it, it's sort of a, a token bandaid for the, uh, I guess, implicit acknowledgement that what you're doing is um, sort of based on these entrenched bureaucratic uh, path dependencies. And it, I mean, it's perhaps an honorable attempt to get new ideas in there. But it's um, also probably an implicit acknowledgement that it's very difficult to actually get those new ideas in there and um, have meaningful reform. Yeah, and I mean, there are certainly certain groups which have been able to achieve results, at least because of scale. I, you, you know, this is, I think, particularly true when it comes to things like fighting disease. Like you had the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which had a, a lot of funding and a strong infrastructure and very... Um, goals that were you could measure success or failure quite concretely and in those cases there does seem to have been success but um i think especially when it comes to development in what i think that word should mean which is when you're establishing something that's self ultimately self-sustaining and ongoing uh this is something where uh it, it sounds like you're you're seeing similar things Th those conversations uh, maybe need to be happening with people who are not within that that set of institutions, as you're saying, which has been tasked with this, but where there's these ideas have died. I'm interested in asking you as well, um, because we focus on, there on Western development, but of course, uh, at Palladium, we've also written about Belt and Road, for example. Um, there's been uh, an excellent critique of Belt and Road published by uh, Tanner Greer, which I think I, I saw you tweeted out as well. I tweeted it out yesterday. And he has, um, his criticism of Belt and Road uh, has been that the Chinese government has sort of had this rhetoric of this grand centralized plan, but in practice has actually allowed a lot of these projects to be taken over by sub-level interests or uh, local governments or businesses or state-owned corporations. And so he sees it actually as being more chaotic uh, than it is planned. On the other hand, I know you were saying earlier that um, in the case of things like Shenzhen, actually those lower level voices speaking up were um, instrumental in the changes that did occur. So I'm interested in your thoughts on whether these kinds of grand plan uh, development projects help or hinder uh, the, the sort of city building that you're interested in. Oh, I mean, they definitely well, they definitely help. Um, it it is just the fact that other people are talking about these sort of grand development plans legitimizes this type of thinking big. And I think in general, people overestimate the right, like centralization of plans. If you look, a number of One Belt, One Road projects existed before um, Belt and Road was announced. Yeah. Right. Belt and Road was to a certain extent just a rationalization of an existing set of um, practices to try to bring them in line with standards. Um, I don't think these, right, like there was recently a report 
that she had basically commissioned a set of best practices for one belt one road to define like right like what projects are actually in the scope and what projects are outside the scope because they did not really have that before um the i don't think it's necessarily bad to say that it's right like coming from all of these competing interest groups because with that's just how things work um i the, the the critique i've read that's most i guess penetrating of belt and road is that a lot of it is basically being financed via debt because a lot of the economic growth in China in since mid 2000s has been um, debt finance infrastructure build out by municipalities that basically the the I don't know like managers of the municipalities similar to a corporate governance structure have quotas to meet in terms of GDP growth and how do they do that by borrowing and by building infrastructure so they meet those quotas. And what they learned in the borrowing and building is that debt is free because every time there's a pending debt crisis in China, they basically just put more money into the system. And then they've taken that learning from, oh, hey, debt is free when we build infrastructure in our own community to our, our own community has enough infrastructure. So let's go build infrastructure in other places. And there's like sort of what might be like, uh, I don't know, semi-analogous like Austrian malinvestment story that you could tell with Belt and Road in that a lot of this infrastructure is being built out because of very cheap debt and is not actually cost effective, particularly when you combine it with the fact that China was, right, like had basically large population growth, but as well as actual economic gains. And while in Africa, for example, there is large population growth, so far in most countries, those economic gains have not materialized. And so they're building based on projected future demand that's not necessarily there. And one example of this is the airport in Livingston, which is built by the Chinese, opened, I don't know, two years ago, and is basically always empty. Um, I'm not sure how true this narrative is. I would guess that there's a hint of truth, but it's not something that I, dug in deeply enough to have a strong opinion on, but um, I, I do think it's important to understand that like the US government, the Chinese government has all of these different competing interests. And similarly, One Belt, One Road is on some margin a grand master plan, but on another margin, just a rationalization for things that are already taking place. Um, which I see as analogous to charter cities in a lot of respects in that I think charter cities are to a certain extent inevitable just because the incentive structure of um, master plan city developers is to create these governance frameworks that will increase property values. And what we are doing is basically trying to create a narrative around this existing trend and trying to create a network within people involved in this existing trend so it can be accelerated and it can be used for the betterment of humanity. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of suspicious in a way, especially when it comes to large countries of um, measuring the success purely based on profitability or on immediate profitability, I should say. I mean, obviously, uh, if one is just throwing money away, building a lot of things that aren't being used, that 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 isn't a smart thing to do. But um, I mean, you, even when one looks at, for example, the old European colonial empires, uh, it's the case that financially, in fact, many colonies ran at losses, but these countries still uh, had this geopolitical power that they exercised as a result of their presence, as a result of controlling various trade networks. And I, so I think for states and especially large states, 
like the U.S. and China, um, there, there's probably a, at least a more uh, multi-scale way of measuring uh, how these these global scale um, involvements, uh, both economic and political, end up benefiting the country. Um, I mean, do you think in that case, because it sounds like you're saying uh, even if Belt and Road is to an extent uh, putting a grand strategy on projects that are already happening, maybe that's still a good thing because then you do have this vision. Uh, would you say then that uh, the U.S. maybe should start thinking more in this way of, of uh, visionary development, for lack of a better word? Uh, or is that something that the U.S. wouldn't really be able to do or do well? Uh, oh, the U.S. certainly could not do it well. Um, uh, briefly, I actually want to go back to Belt and Road, just to one of my favorite, I don't know what to call it, sort of narratives of One Belt, One Road is it's basically to reduce revolution risk in China. So who causes revolution risk? It's basically a bunch of unemployed or underemployed young men. Yeah. And so how do you reduce that? It's that you take all of the um, unemployed or underemployed young men you give them jobs and then you ship them to those jobs overseas. <laughs> so if they riot, then they are rioting overseas and not actually a threat to the political stability of uh, the country. And if you look at the populations, uh, like basically how, I mean, China is operating on one belt, one road. They're treating most of the countries they're operating in to a certain extent as extractive resources, similar to like oil rigs in um, Siberia, you basically just send send a bunch of young men to have self-contained units where they build the railroad or the factory or the airport um, and don't have a lot of interaction with the uh, larger populace. Um, to go to your question on the U.S. as to should the U.S. embrace this kind of grand strategy, I mean, I think it should. I think the U.S. still has, I don't know, 5 to 15 or 20 years of collapse until we actually like get our shit together and hopefully get a new narrative and an ability to actually like meaningful ex meaningfully execute on long-term plans mm -hmm. it's actually quite interesting reading the history of china um with like the opium opium wars and i think that is to a certain extent semi-analogous to where the u.s is today in that it is basically a right like fading powerhouse that hasn't fully come to terms with the mm -hmm. fact that it is being substantially outcompeted by a new entrant in the, I don't know, global sphere. Um, and it's going to take a while before that has become internalized and new institutions can effectively be built that are mm -hmm. able to have these large plans and be able to execute on them. I mean, right, if NASA, for example, said that, look, we're going to like go to Mars in 20 years, nobody would believe them. Um, if China says it, then people like believe China and take it seriously. But um, the U.S. is unable to make long-term commitments and to effectively execute on them. Yeah, well, and I, so yeah, yeah. I, I've said previously. I, I think it was on a previous episode that the the U.S. essentially seems to be losing state capacity from the top down. And what I mean by that is that um, I mean you know you go to a lot of cities or states even uh, across the U.S. and and they're fairly well run. Um, what ends up being the case, though, is that the U.S. is less and less able to coordinate on large scale, and there's a trickle-down effect there where we see the Eisenhower era, they're able to coordinate effectively on a global scale, um, but then on the 2000s, uh, you know, these nation-building wars end up being disasters, and in the 2010s now, uh, even achieving things on a, a federal, national level 
seems to be often beyond the scope of U.S. government ability. So there's this kind of top-down disintegration that occurs, and the question that would have to be asked then is, you know, because even if we were to look at a, a city or a state in the U.S. that has policies that are maybe scalable, is there anyone at this top level actually um, able to act on that, essentially? Because if, if in a central government there, there's no one actually able to do the scaling, um, then, then there, you know, then the the state or the city really does seem to become more of this escape region where where people are in a more adversarial relationship with a dysfunctioning center. Yeah, I mean, I think what the U.S. government basically has to do is create new institutions. I think reforming government institutions are very difficult. So you basically create parallel regulatory bodies that have overlapping authorities, you um, de-staff existing regulatory bodies just through attrition. And if you have 10 years of attrition without replacing staff, then they sort of fall pretty rapidly and allow the new regulatory body to basically increasingly take over their functions and you staff it with the young and ambitious people um, and create a culture and incentive that allows them to have that set of career advancements, that set of status um, to make government cool again. And with that, I think as a strategy, you can probably replace some of the um, dysfunctional aspects. I mean, the other, I think, challenge is just like the boomers um, need to be lowered in status. Like they're going to be very resistant to any change just because they've been the beneficiaries of like one of the largest young to old wealth transfers in the history of the world. And um, they are uh, like it, it's it's they, they generally think things are going well because they are going well for the boomers. And until we see a shift in um, bloody voting power, which we're starting to see uh, and in the, the these new ideas and actually starting to see them get traction, I think it's just going to be more of the same, unfortunately. Yeah, and that, that kind of like restructuring of government that you're talking about really does require kind of some level of political unity at the top. Like one of the reasons that can't sort of happen right now is there's just so much fighting yeah. over the whole thing and, and no one really has a clear vision or like the competence to actually drive that. There there needs to be a new narrative and we're seeing like the we're seeing the reemergence of grand ideas. Um, like for the last like 30 years, everything was basically technocratic, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of like, let's go invade Iraq and create a new government. Right. <laughs> um, and now we are seeing right, like with AOC on the left, these like grand new ideas of like Green New Deal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's incoherent, but it is it a is big. big vision. And so far, the right hasn't really found that. Um, but I think there is increasing interest. And so, yeah. for example, I'm on the uh, board of directors of Radical Exchange, which is based on uh, Glenn Weil's book, um, which is one of these new grand narratives. And it's um, it, it, it just shows that I think there is this increasing appetite for these mm-hmm. new big ideas on like how to rethink about social organization, particularly in the American context. Yeah, well, and, I mean, and, and that's really the business we're in at Palladium, right? Yeah. Like, this is the trend we're betting on, basically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I expect there to be a, a, these dueling narratives over the next period. Hopefully one will win and hopefully then we can get some semblance of coordination on the national level. 
The yeah. pessimistic take is just that the only reason we had this effective coordination is because of mass media. And as soon as you go away from mass media, as well as like having a major coordinating event, namely World War II in recent memory, there it's just not like technologically feasible to have mm-hmm. these this new mass narrative just because people are going to be dominated by their Facebook streams and whatever like anti-facts or nonsense is on there yeah, at whatever yeah. but increasingly increasingly those like the social media narratives are becoming much more like centralized uh, through various yeah. means like the, the the system has sort of woken up to that to that issue which is why we have vocabulary to talk about it Right, and so there is actually quite a large response within the system to that. Yeah, but I see that as the old system trying to retain its authority, where you yeah, see absolutely. people in the New York Times who are like, Facebook needs to censor Pelosi's video. It's like, okay, but like, yes, we should argue for like Facebook to be the censor of our political preferences. This is not a like winning battle. Um, I, I suspect there will be, right, like maybe eventually we do see the major social media coming up with like, um, filtering mechanisms that allow the creation of this new narrative. I don't think it's going to be based on the old power centers of like the New York Times, yeah, yeah, and the Excel Quarter. Yeah, my point is just that it's uh, it, it's it is currently recentralizing. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. It kind of there's a kind of difficulty here in, in the sense that Facebook is not a is not a state run organization, right? Nor and, is it set up to be wielding that kind of power, right? And yet it does essentially have a foreign policy. And it does have a tremendous amount of power in terms of, of what political campaigns c- can potentially succeed or fail or, mm-hmm. or like who's boosted, who's not boosted. Um, and that kind of power is, is something that the state wants to uh, converge, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I would bet on Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. his, 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 his hero is Augustine. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Augustine or Augustus? Augustus. Augustus. Okay. Augustus. Yeah, yeah, Augustus. Yeah. But but th- this idea of, of um, how how freedom in a sense operates and, and which narratives end up shaping uh, the culture of, of of the world generally, but it, even of the cities that we're discussing here, something I was thinking about when uh, preparing for this episode was um, the fact that in a lot of up and coming cities, you know, we have this phenomenon where um, the experience, let's say, the experience of freedom or, or of monitoring uh, is very different than it would have been 30 years ago because of te- uh, technological changes, right? And so we have things like the Chinese social credit system has gotten a lot of press, but even in a place like Singapore, right, in order, and this is why I've always found it interesting that Singapore was was held up as a kind of um, ideal maybe for Westerners with more liberal or free market leanings, because it's true that the city, uh, the city state in Singapore has a lot of economic freedom. But then you also have phenomena like uh, a lot of the housing being publicly owned um, and having been been expanded by the government there through things like eminent uh, domain. You have controls on media and so on and so forth. You have controls on public behavior, right? Things like spitting or chewing gum, and, and so. In order for large cities to function smoothly, um, it seems like this question of how much control you're experiencing in your life is not really being determined by the ideology of the person running the city so much as by the concrete necessities of governing these 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 mega cities. You know, especially when we're talking about cities with millions of people 
I'm interested to hear, Mark, do you think that um, it's possible if we're moving to a world where, where mo much or most of the world is living in these larger cities, do you think that there will be really a, a diversity of, um, call it cultures of the city, or, or do you think we'll actually see a certain homogenization because of these kinds of pressures? No, I think we'll definitely see a homogenization. Um, I mean, there will be two sort of types of cities, probably like Chinese-influenced ones and American-influenced ones, and then ones that are on the periphery of both. Um, but, I mean, we're already seeing that, right? Like, the elite in all countries are more or less westernized. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the cultural difference between, like, a Zambian elite and an American elite is very small. Between, like, a Nigerian elite and an American elite is very small. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at uh, some of the, I don't know, like, lower-income people in emerging markets, then there is a much greater cultural difference. But among the cosmopolitan class... Which is part of the reason I think there is this like broad push for immigration. It's because among the cosmopolitan class, all of their interactions with other countries are from the mm -hmm. more or less the elite of those other countries, and the mm -hmm. operating assumption is that they're representative of those countries. Um, and I, 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 you, you did bring up an interesting point, which is that the ideology is less important in governing a city than the actual constraints. I would make two points here. I think at the uh, in economics, what would be called the constitutional moment, the ideology is quite important because that basically sets the like future constraints. That is where you choose the framework within which mm -hmm. you have future decision-making rights. After that framework is chosen, I believe that practical con concerns will dominate, but making sure that you get that framework right to align the incentives of the decision-making decision-makers with those who are impacted by the decisions, I think is quite important in... Um, making sure that the that that these cities can be successful uh, over the long term, and so that's what we spend a lot of our time thinking about is how to get this like initial moment right to set up the institutional incentives to make sure that the people making the decision in twenty years, um, I mean, hopefully have some like cultural legacy from what we've done, but to have a incentive legacy that shapes their decisions in ways that benefits um, the people uh, living in the community. So I, I have a, a question about the initial moment as it relates to, to Zambia. So hopefully there's going to be a, a memorandum of, of understanding shortly. If that, that hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen shortly. And... Um, I, I'm like there's the traditional critique of of charter cities in in governments that actually could could benefit from them, which is that they're probably less likely than more established governments to be able to guarantee investment long term because of like regime uncertainty and so on. So like there's an obvious you know very basic you know kind of played critique that they're just going to flip on the memorandum as soon as the next government comes in or even just a, a year later with the same government. Um, but what I'm actually interested in is what are some particular tactics that potential charter cities can use to discourage such behavior? I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about like it, it's time to you know get your own mercenary force or something. There, yeah. there are a lot of different possible things in that space. So there's there's a few ways to do it. One, get foreign direct investment and make that foreign direct investment conditional upon the creation of the special jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So you can do this with, for example, letters of intent with potential investors. 
And when we met with the Zambian Development Agency, for example, they uh, were like, why don't you bring more investors? And it's like, well, we're trying like next time, guys. Um, but have the investors come and have them say, we will put in $10 million with this legal framework and zero without it. Um, two, what you can do is, I forget what this body is called, or uh, but the, the UN body in charge of decolonization, which basically hasn't had anything to do for the last four years, get yeah. them to pay play a role in the governance of the charter city such that if the government then reneges on the legislation, on the legal framework, then they're reneging on their UN treaty, which is the strongest paper protection you can get. Three is create a lot of jobs, uh, have people employed, have people enjoy living there, have people enjoy everything. And then if the government is messing with it, then they're messing with uh, no politician wants to destroy jobs. Uh, four, what you could do is you could IPO the city in the local stock market. Mm -hmm. And then what would likely happen is pension funds in that stock market, um, maybe government pension funds, maybe private pension funds would buy the stock. And then these pension funds, which tend to wield a... Um, not insignificant amount of political power would have a vested interest in the long-term mm -hmm. success of the city. Um, and then four, right, what you want to do is align the incentives of the ruling elite with the success of the city. And in practice, what this means is finding um, basically the powerful families in the country. You don't, we want to, you don't want to, you want to make sure it's legal and you want to make sure it's ethical, but find the families that have, we have a disproportionate amount of political influence and make sure that they have an interest in the success of the city, whether that's either having property there or having businesses there or having a ownership stake in the city, um, such that if in 10 years or in five years or in two years, the country is considering revoking some of the uh, legal jurisdiction, some of the rights of the city, then the um, politically influential families can wield their political influence to protect the mm -hmm. legal institutions of the charter city. No, that's 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 fantastic. I mean, that's you know the, those list of tactics. It's essentially uh, mac maximizing skin in the game for as many parties as possible, which then makes it yeah kind of politically unpopular in so many ways that 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 would be definitely a way of of say pushing back against the bureaucracy that wants to maintain jealously say jurisdiction over commercial law entirely yeah well and it also opens uh or, or it hedges against challenges of sovereignty essentially right because regardless of the formal relationship i think between a, a government and, and a special zone or a city um, any once an area starts becoming the economic engine and gains a lot of wealth, it becomes a political power, um, you know, regardless of what the formal uh, qualifications are. And essentially what something like this does is it, it takes people who otherwise might fear uh, being threatened by that kind of engine, politically speaking, later on, and um, it, it lets them essentially hedge against sovereignty capture. Uh, or at least a portion of it, by growing alongside uh, in a political sense and not just the economic one. Once, once those initial conditions and tactics are taken care of, perhaps you know the the risk long term is something like uh, new governments haggling or or forcing that that haggling uh, moment over uh, tax rates, over things on the margin, 
um, and then you know threatening sanctions or whatever if, if there's non-compliance or something. I, th I think you know because you know full-scale in invasion or military invasion or something and then uh, there are all sorts of tactics the state can use in, in response but um, once you have those initial conditions set, it, it becomes a lot harder. And then, you know, okay, maybe you fool around with a couple percentage points on, on whatever tax arrangement there is, but, you know, you, you have the fundamentals then, right? You have the charter city, essentially. Yeah, and I think um, this is, this is, there's no silver bullet. There, right. A lot of people who ask this question think, like, what is the, right, like, one secret that countries don't want you to know about how <laughs> yeah. you can guarantee the special jurisdiction for eternity. And it doesn't work like that. It's always going to be yeah. a political game. Um, but if, there if are, this question were solved, world foreign investment and world development would look a lot more different, like a lot differently than, than it is now. Yeah. Like already. Yeah. One of the other things that I actually didn't bring up, this is typically used in natural resources. But if a country does expropriate a foreign company, you can sue them. If you win an international court, you can confiscate their overseas assets to repay. I'm not sure there is um, precedent for this in real estate developments, but there is a lot of precedent in natural, debt. natural resources. Um, yeah. And that could probably be applied if you draft language in the right way uh, for uh, charter cities. And yeah, I mean, there, there's always the risk of the future reneging on the deal. For example, in Zambia right now, the government wants to raise taxes on um, mining companies because the Zambian government is facing this debt crisis. Right. And so the mining companies are a politically unpopular uh, group that they can basically raise taxes on because it's those bad foreigners. Uh, and that's always going to be a risk present, but there, there, there are strategies to mitigate this risk that I think are generally underappreciated um, in, in, in at least some circles that are interested in charter cities. So speaking of taxes, uh, which Jonah just mentioned, this is changing uh, gears a bit, but funding charter cities, um, how have these zones in these cities done it so far? How should they be doing it? Because I know you mentioned Radical Exchange earlier, um, Glenn Wiles' organization, uh, they're of course doing work on these sort of upgrades to these old Georgist models which focus on things like taxing land value rather than productivity. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear how cities gain revenue, uh, are able to make things like infrastructure investment while still, you know, being this economic engine. So what I would, one, which body are you funding? So for example, there are separate bodies. There would be the governing body, which would be a nonprofit, and that would do things like uh, uh, a, if it's a charter city, provide for education, have a healthcare system, do the, 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 the permitting, the governance aspect, that would probably be funded by a association of taxes. I'm relatively sympathetic to the land value tax because it tends to be the most uh, sort of least disruptive tax. And then there is second, the real estate developer, which is probably going to be a for-profit company, which is going to recoup their investments in infrastructure via land sales or land leases. One of the challenges of charter cities is basically trying to get the governing body to have the long-term interest of the residents of the charter city in line with their interests, residents as well as future residents. And the way we are thinking about that is having the developer basically have a say in the governing body with the assumption being that the developer is providing public goods like roads, sewers, electricity, 
and uh, governments to a certain extent can be thought of as a public good. The thing is traditional real estate models uh, focus on basically you build and then you sell and then you create homeowners associations to do future governance. So there are several new city projects that are taking this approach. And this works, but I think the incentives of homeowners associations are generally not as aligned with the long-term interests of the community as um, a, a proprietary developer. And so this requires a rethinking of the development model from a build and sell model to a build and hold model where you do leases um, such that the developer is thinking 50 years into the future rather than having a governance model where residents often don't have similar time horizons mm-hmm. and similar um, just interests because of the challenges of coordinating amongst all of the, the, the various stakeholders and having one stakeholder that can take a much um, sort of longer term interest, I think, allows for uh, better execution of these long term projects. So charter cities, in addition to involving the um, I guess reinvention of governance to a certain extent also require the reinvention of not really reinvention, but pretty substantial changes to traditional real estate models, mm-hmm. I think, to make them as successful as, as possible. Yeah. And there seem to be intergenerational trade-offs here as well, because I know even in Singapore where they had the solution of um, sort of publicly leased housing, I think that the 99 year lease model, um, uh, but because people have, you know, the first generations that were living in them are are now older, um, but, you know, people have had one or two kids. And so uh, even here, younger people are having a difficult time getting housing uh, and those prices have gone up despite all the support. Um, so it seems like keeping the door open uh, within these cities to develop further as needed uh, is a key thing. I mean, in a lot of cities around the world now, we're seeing these responses to, to things like housing prices through people wanting to take more radical approaches with things like deregulation um, to, to development. And so it seems like, ironically, by, uh, by operating on the sort of leasehold system where development can be kept open centrally, uh, rather than simply distributing property rights permanently to everyone living in those houses, you're actually able to keep open that development for the long run. Yeah, and you can also basically build in within the lease certain um, allowances. So some like quasi eminent domain, it's not really eminent domain if it's in the lease, where just like we can buy you out at 1.5x market value at any time. And that way, when there starts being uh, substantial demand for new places. You just buy out blocks at a time mm-hmm. and you either pay them or you offer to rehouse them in the apartments that you build. And this allows you to uh, effectively overcome like the holdout problem and effectively f- like um, quickly adopt to changing market conditions to accommodate uh, rapidly growing uh, populations that otherwise with a different property ownership model might be might be more difficult to accomplish. Okay, well, I, I have sort of one final question here then, and, and then I'll sort of uh, leave it open to discussion for the remainder. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, this dynamic of cosmopolitanization, essentially, where 
people, uh, the, the urban class from various parts of the world begins to be very culturally similar. I mean, I've seen this myself, people I know from, uh, you know, the other side of the world who are, who have been educated, have lived in Western countries, will post pictures or videos of their kids. Uh, and they're using essentially the same slang as the kids here in the, the neighborhoods that I, that I live in. When we're looking at something like the populist phenomenon, it's often been presented at, as this conflict between uh, a more globally mobile urban class and then uh, work, working people, um, a hollowed out middle class that isn't as mobile. Where do you see that dynamic going? And do you think that having, you know, maybe even a global majority becoming urbanized is going to, um, like, will that reinforce the current dynamic or will, will some kind of deal be reached where people who are not uh, part of that class will nevertheless gain benefits or have some kind of stake. Um, I mean, things like UBI is obviously discussed. So generally speaking, what is the trajectory here? That's a big question to end on. Of course. <laughs> um, uh, short answer, it's complex. The additional dynamic I would add is basically the geopolitical dynamic of... Um, China having basically, I don't know, credible threats to the assertion of power tends to centralize power in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I, I do see broadly what like uh, as the right, like the, the greater the growth of this global middle urban class, I think they'll continue to assert greater political authority. What we're seeing is a reaction against that and this reaction has become relatively deep and I think will continue but long term I think the trends are still there uh, just because I think people generally value um, like people value a lot of things but generally a good proxy if we think over sufficiently long time horizons is just material output and if we think about material output and what are the necessary conditions to lead to that, this basically like educated knowledge producing middle class is the most effective way to increase material output. And while there will be um, uh, reactions to this and pushbacks when we think over sufficiently long time horizons, by which I mean 50, 100, 200 years, uh, I think we will see these general um, trends towards greater trade, greater like cosmopolitanism, um, this sort of adopting of this uh, semi-universal culture. And I, I think right th there is a question of in the short term with this populist reaction, how far it will go, what um, reverses of these past, uh, I guess, like cosmopolitanization gains will be reversed and how permanent will those reversals be. Uh, for example, during World War One, uh, trade reached a high in, I believe, 1913 of uh, international trade as a percentage of GDP that wasn't subsequently reached to like the mid 70s. And so that was a pretty long term reversal in these trends. But eventually that trend was reversed. I would not expect there to be another 60 year um, reversal, but a 20 year reversal in some of these trends would not necessarily surprise me. But but the global um momentum, let's call it, will will ultimately win out, you think? 
Yeah, um, people like stuff and certain modes of social organization are better at producing stuff than other modes. And over the long run, I'm going to bet on those modes of social organization that produce more stuff. All right. Well, that's an uncontroversial answer, and we'll get no feedback about that at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's not just like that. Some modes are more productive than others, as much as like indivi the individual incentives are to participate in like the largest, most powerful network for yeah. production. Like, if you yourself want to get involved in in the production of the stuff or like getting the stuff you go and join that global class. Yeah. Whereas, like, you can imagine other, other th like, there isn't, a, basically there isn't a collective action problem standing between, uh, between people and, and that, like, high productivity mode. It's, it's an individual decision. Yeah. Well, uh, we just passed the hour 30 mark, and, and so I'm going to call it here. Uh, this has been the Palladium Podcast, episode 10. Uh, thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. This has been an awesome discussion. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Great, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and uh, to everyone else, uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.